Welcome back to Future in Focus, a podcast from Schmidt Futures. I'm Wilson Shirley. Today, we're bringing the future into focus with a conversation on innovation and entrepreneurship with Melvin Lubega and Kimberly Yao. Melvin Lubega is a technology entrepreneur and investor. He built and scaled GoOne, a leading technology platform, and the first South African unicorn. He's also a partner at Briga, an early-stage venture capital investment firm. He has an undergraduate degree from the University of Cape Town and postgraduate degrees from the University of Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. Kim is a Chinese-Filipino entrepreneur who is making an impact in the $700 billion Southeast Asian food industry. As the co-founder and CEO of Cloud Eats, a leading food service technology startup, she builds cloud kitchen technology and digitally native restaurant brands to power the online food revolution. Welcome to you both. Hi, Wilson. Thanks so much. At the International Strategy Forum's Global Summit, uh, I've been really impressed by the scale of the problems that we're talking about attempting to fix. We have problems in geopolitics, problems in technology. But one thing that I think is a little frustrating for a lot of people here is that people are just talking about the problems and solutions are hard to come by. But you both run your own businesses, your founders, your entrepreneurs. Uh, you're in the business of looking for problems that need solving and going out and trying to fix them. I would love it, Melvin and Kim, if we could start with you guys just talking about what your businesses are, what you're trying to do, what problems you're trying to solve. So Kim, why don't we start with you? So in emerging markets like the Philippines, um, where I'm from, uh, one of our biggest problems is food, access to high quality, affordable uh, and convenient food is sadly challenging. I know it sounds very trivial if you're in North America or in Europe, because these aren't problems that you deal with every day. But you know, in places like the Philippines and Vietnam, where we operate, access to food is very limited. Um, I guess one of the big reasons is geographically, we are an archipelago. Uh, in the Philippines, we have 7,000 islands. So logistically speaking, getting food to every single island is just difficult, right? Yeah. Another thing is the wealth disparity is quite pronounced um, in our, our area of the world. So uh, people who have uh, money to pay for food have excess of good food. And then those who are on the less fortunate side don't have access to that um, because of how much uh, food costs, how much good food costs, right? And the third, I think, which is uh, more relevant to what we're talking about today is technology adoption in terms of food and food service is very slow uh, in, I think, globally, but more so in regions like us, right? So, um, and at Cloud Eats, which is the name of my company, uh, we believe that everyone deserves access to high quality, uh, affordable, uh, good food, right? So the way that we decided to tackle um, this issue uh, is to look at how technology can help customers have access to better food, more convenient um, and high quality. So what we did was we provide infrastructure, which is uh, what we call cloud kitchens. So we build a cloud kitchen network where uh, food is being produced at a hyper-efficient, uh, very optimized way. And to tie the brands and the infrastructure together, we built technology. So the technology that like, the operating system of our cloud kitchens makes everything more efficient because of the efficiency, prices of our food is very affordable, right? So all of the savings we generate from hyper-efficient operations goes directly to the customers in the form of savings, right? So the result of the infrastructure, the tech, and the and the virtual brands is basically people now have access to good food at great prices online. Thank you for that explanation. That was really clear. And it also raises a lot of questions about how the Philippines works, um, questions of equality, questions of access. So Melvin, talk about what your experience has been like. We believe that education is the most powerful tool someone can use to change their economic and social circumstance. 
And so that's where we really focus on professional learning. And our company called Go One is we exist to help people unlock their positive potential through a love for learning. So it's how do we provide access, affordable access to high quality learning and training opportunities. And so we do that through our content hub, which you can think of like Spotify for um, professional learning, where we aggregate over 100,000 learning resources courses from the best learning providers around the world into one subscription, into one library. And then we offer that to companies and governments in different geographies. And really comes down to the point earlier, proving access and people become their better selves. So one thing that you talked about, Kim, that I thought was really interesting was one about geography, the fact that the Philippines, it's an, it's an archipelago in the Indo-Pacific. You also talked about uh, trying to bring businesses to different different parts of the archipelago. So when you think about expansion, when you think about scale, particularly in emerging markets, how is that different than in the Philippines, than in uh, any other market? And what, what specific problems are you thinking about when you tackle the issue of scale? Yeah, I guess for us, expansion means going to highly populated and dense areas. So the way food delivery works is, um, especially in on-demand food, you can only deliver up to a certain point in time where also food becomes cold, right? <laughs> Unlike you know, shipping a phone, for example, or shipping shoes, right? So if you're shipping a hot a soup, then you can't ship further out than like five kilometers, right? So our uh, expansion points become where are the other densely populated areas in, in the region, the Philippines, for example. The problem is for us, you need to cross seas and rivers and oceans to get to these densely populated areas, right? So supply chain logistics becomes a massive headache, right? So actually today we have um, cloud kitchens in the northern part of the Philippines only for precisely this reason. Uh, one of the ideas is we just build another facility or a, co a commissary, basically, or central kitchen in those other islands. But we need to determine whether the demand is enough for you to build a bigger facility there, right? So, you know, I think scale is is really understanding where the people are uh, and where the economics will work. Because it, like, if you think about um, places like like here where we are at in in California, right? Everything is so it's not vertical, uh, but it's horizontal. So the number of people that you capture. For a cloud kitchen here is small compared to a cloud kitchen in Manila, where there's 12 million people in a very small concentrated area. So I don't think my business will work here, for example, compared to places like Indonesia, which is Jakarta. It's like also an archipelago. Also an archipelago, yes. Or you know, Taiwan. So yeah. interestingly, Taiwan is the market, the biggest market for food delivery in the world. Uh, don't ask me why. Uh, we, don't, we don't operate in Taiwan, uh, but uh, it's a very small, densely populated area with uh, large purchasing power for people. So I think that ma makes sense in terms of food delivery um, for us. So we look at which places have high populated areas. So where do you look for opportunities to expand and scale? Yeah, it's interesting. So when you think of scale in our world, so it's ultimately a B2B aggregated marketplace. And so the scale both in terms of our products and the relevance in the countries we go to and how do we, uh, I guess, address them. And so it's quite nice in our space is training is quite a long tail. So Microsoft Excel is Microsoft Excel, leadership's leadership. But you may go to, I don't know, Queensland, Australia and have a very specific compliance course. And so for us, when you think of scale, it's almost thinking through what is the next frontier that is relevant for the product we have. And so often when we think about different geographies, so we're present across 14 countries today, and so just being intentional about, you can either go deep in a particular country or you can go broad. 
And so for us, we're very much thinking through how do we deepen our presence in our current customer base? How do we offer more value? And so scale is not necessarily a geographic play, but almost a deep link within. And so if you think about it, I don't know how often people wake up in the morning and say, oh, I want to do an online course. Like people are learning every single day through different formats, through like a short course, through an audiobook. And so just trying to become more and more relevant in our customers' learning is how we think about scale from that perspective. So in order to scale, whatever your company is, no matter where you're working, you need access to capital. So I'd love to talk about that because uh, you both have a lot of experience in this field, raising money as a venture capital investor. Melvin, you look for opportunities. So what are some of the challenges that you've faced in trying to raise capital for your businesses? And then the flip side, where do you think the opportunities for capital are? And either of you, feel free to take that question. I guess one of the challenges is uh, the Philippines is not typically high on investment radars. They don't know a lot about the location, the population, and many are surprised that 95% of people speak English in the Philippines. So I think that's a huge upside, right? Because Southeast Asia, like no one speaks English in Thailand, Vietnam, but in Philippines, everybody speaks English. Yeah, very also, close relations to the US for a yes, lot of reasons yeah. as well. Also, another thing is that the Philippine population is so tech savvy because they're young. So average age is 25. Wow. Everyone has a smartphone, right? In the last like seven, eight years, the smartphone penetration, internet penetration has just like completely changed the country. So uh, in the last three years, have been the time that venture capital uh, or other investors, private equity, have been looking into the country. So there's been a surge of investments for us. But prior to three years ago, nobody was looking at at our country. Uh, so I guess similar to like to like Africa, right? Now is the time. Last couple of years that people understand huge opportunities are in these uh, locations compared to more mature markets where valuations of companies are are crazy. You can't get in at the right time. So now is the right time, I think, for um, for Asian and, and African startups. Yeah. yeah, I think it's so true. But something I always reflect on is not every company should take venture capital. And, you know, even as a venture capital investor, you know, you want to put money into businesses. I think as an entrepreneur, it's always being very intentional about how you want to use the money and actually what kind of capital you need. I mean, yeah. there's debt, there's financing, there's invoice factoring. There's so many ways you can actually fund your business. It is still capital, but not necessarily venture capital. Because... I think to the point they mentioned that venture capital requires a certain return hurdle. And so if you aren't building a big business with a big opportunity, you will unable to attract that particular kind of capital. And so when I think of the hat that I wear as a VC, I always ask myself one, and I think to your point, you know, in Africa in the last, I think last year, it was about $5 billion worth of investment in VC in Africa. And for the whole continent? The whole continent, exactly. The way you said it, that's exactly the issue. <laughs> Yet that was the same amount of investment that went to Spain. And Spain is not really a play even EU venture. Yeah. And so it's a very low base and that's where the opportunity exists. But I think I find in emerging markets and even more so in Africa, the opportunity lies in where the biggest problems exist, where the biggest opportunities are to capture that value and create solutions that address that particular point that, that, that you mentioned earlier. And so where I get excited is people solving really big problems. And in our continent, maybe the same in the Philippines, there are so many, literally basics around, you know, education, healthcare, food, to your point. And so from that perspective, it is just saying, how do you find the entrepreneurs or the jockeys that have the ambition and audacity to solve those problems? And that's what excites me about being an investor, but just also taking a very practical approach to it. 
Sure. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the problems uh, that you both have raised a little bit during this conversation. Let's start locally. What are the local problems in building a business, scaling a business that you think the rest of the world can learn from in your particular uh, working environments? I don't know if I should start because I'll never end. So <laughs> there's like a long hurdle, long list of, of hurdles um, to you know operating a business in my side of the world. Um, mm -hmm. It's not as straightforward. Um, there's a lot of relationship-based, um, it's very um, archaic systems, I guess. Um, so it's not as straightforward, right? So I guess the problem is if you want to grow very fast, if you want to scale quickly, and the government isn't able to support you with that because they're just slow, they're very bureaucratic, how, how do you do that? I think maneuvering around it is, is the challenge for us. Interesting. So what I find, so when I left, for example, undergrad, to be an entrepreneur is almost looked down upon. It was almost like, no, Melvin, don't struggle. My dad's a partner at this firm. We'll get you a job. Like, don't be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And even though entrepreneurship is a bit sexy now, I think the challenge at the tip of the uh, top of the funnel, tip of the spear, is the stigma around being self-employed and being an entrepreneur. Whereas I think in America, like you embrace like, oh no, you're building an entrepreneur. I'm going to fail. I'm going to grow. Whereas I think in our context in Africa, failure is often seen as fatal. And so people don't want to take that risk. They'd rather go into a comfortable corporate job. Also coupled by the fact that often as someone that's been to school, you end up supporting so many family members. And so you can go have fun and risk it, but there's actually school fees to be paid and you can't necessarily eat stock options for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think even before you get into the points of, you know, the restrictions on government, like you mentioned, it's that psyche element. One thing I think in the US with the growth market is where government actually supports innovation development because companies will grow, they'll innovate, they'll generate taxes. Whereas in our world in technology, you're competing globally and capital can go anywhere. So if you're choosing to go into, I don't know, the Philippines or South Africa, Uganda, the reality is if it's not a friendly, investor-friendly environment, capital won't go there. And so to your point, you then miss that piece of getting scale and growth just because there's no way of, let's say, getting your money out or IP laws aren't strong. And that's even before you get into the actual red tape of operating that economy. That's right. I have a practical example to that. So when we raised our, our Series A, um, it was very clear to them to investors that they would not invest in a Philippine-based entity, right? So we had to take our company, establish it in Singapore, which is a more, you know, uh, no red flags. Yeah, I think that it uh, is a more investor-friendly place than Hong Kong right now. Correct. Wow. Uh, we had decided that we would have to move the company out to Singapore for us to receive international investment. So the Philippines was automatically a no-go zone, right? So. Uh, I mean, I think that's one of the hurdles we, we had to go. So we've just talked about challenges, but uh, in this conversation, I get the sense that both of you have a feeling of tremendous opportunity. Kim, you talked about how people in the last two or three years have started to look more towards the Philippines as a potential destination for capital. You talked about the demographics of the Philippines, very young. Melvin, Africa is the youngest continent in the world by the end of the century. It could, if if lines continue as they are, it could have the majority of the world's population, which is just a, a stunning reality. So what do you think is driving that that change in perception that now actually is a time for more opportunity in these emerging markets? So venture capitalists, take that view. If you had to go around the Bay Area or the Valley, you would hear a investor that said, I missed Facebook, I missed Instagram, because there are all these big businesses. In Africa, there were no real success stories. So as a continent, we only have 10 unicorns. France has 26. And so people realizing that you can actually not only solve big problems, but actually realize value in solving those problems. And I think there's that sense of realizing that it's such a nascent and small contributor 
to the fill-up ecosystem, to innovation, to tech, and therefore there's so much blue sky. But also in the same way, and I think to your point, demographic growth can be a good thing. It's not an automatic fact that it's a, a, a demographic dividend. And so it's almost like yeah, if you do certain things well, that population growth, those resources, that economic growth can be captured and actually can be nurtured. And so that's what I think is a level of excitement. Also, I think right, these investments are global. And so if you're searching for yield or return, if you're getting one or 2% in Western markets and you're getting double digits in Africa, it stands to reason you probably go where there's a lot more upside to go. I don't know how you see in the Philippines, but there are many I think, entrepreneurs who have seen these models in the US, in the UK and other markets who are coming back with this energy to just build. And that's so exciting. Yeah, I think because um, borders are so fluid now, um, people are so you know, on social media, they see all of these things happening in the U.S., Western markets, they come back and they say, I'm going to do the, the Philippine version, the Indonesian version. And I think that's just driving uh, the change. Um, they see what works in Europe. They see what works in the U.S. Hey, we want that too. And we localize and we do something for our own country. Both of your experiences in business have really, in a lot of ways, been about innovation. They've been about figuring out where problems uh, exist and new solutions to try to fix them. So in your own experience in business, where do you look for new ideas or where, what are your sources of inspiration for innovation? I think very cliche, but like conferences like this, for me, I missed a lot. Over the last I know, three years, uh, pandemic was really very difficult for us in the Philippines. We were in lockdown in my house for like a year, like rock solid, like you couldn't leave your house for a year. And you lose professional contacts, you lose personal contacts at the same time. So I think um, you also lose a sense of like imagination because you're literally stuck in a place, right? So I think this helps me see what's out there literally and also hear you know, what I haven't heard in, in a long time. So I think this is, this is great. That's really encouraging. No, thank you. Melvin? For me, it's often having a deeper understanding of the problem I'm solving. So for example, whether it is logistics or training, I haven't been a teacher, I've never been an HR manager, I've never been a truck driver. And so often just spending time with those people I'm trying to solve the problem for is so impact, is so exciting and being open-minded and going back to first principles, because I always believe that if you understand the problem better than anybody else, you'll come up with a solution better than anybody else. And so for me, it's just always immersing myself because the reality is the problems that Kim and I are solving aren't new industries. I mean, training has been done for thousands of years. People have been eating for millions of years. And yeah. so it's almost the innovation and how we deliver that value. And that's where it's almost going back to the, how do I think about it differently? To Kim's points around being able to bounce ideas, think through things in a more, more thoughtful way. Sure. Um, and to your point, Kim, part of the point of the global summit that we're at right now is to build a network of ideas that can point out problems that people might not know exist, that maybe someone else has an idea to fix or just increase uh, your access to other networks around the world. But a major part of this conference isn't just business. Um, it's also about foreign policy. So I'd love to hear how you both think about what you're doing in a global context, given all the geopolitical tensions that we're seeing right now around the world. A question I asked Eric earlier today, um, Eric Schmidt was, you know, in 20 years time, what does success look like for us? And he spoke about leaders who are able to understand the complexities of the time. Gatherings like these are so important to be able to understand those geopolitical tensions. I think for a long time, you could almost say, not in my backyard, I'm isolated from it. And so it's almost thinking through how do you deeply understand, to your point, the global happenings and the impact. And so I think about like even in our, our business now, uh, during COVID as an example. So we have teams in Europe and also in Africa 
and just being able to understand the pandemic and how that was affecting different parts of the world sure. allowed us to better show up for the governments that we worked with and those that were unemployed. And so I think it's both a opportunity and a risk uh, from that perspective. And so my goal is always to, how do you remain relevant and up to date as a global leader and as leader of uh, people and companies, if you will apply, rely on you to, for gainful employment. So you're able to one, have an impact, but to also understand things globally. Great. For me also, I find myself oftentimes on autopilot, meaning if you present me with a problem, I'll just autopilot into like a specific solution. But being in places like this where, you know, you're so bombarded with like so many ideas, brainstorming, just different perspectives, I think makes me want to be more critical about things, right? So I'd like to close with the question that Melvin, you asked Eric Schmidt earlier today. So you asked Eric, in 20 years, how will you know if this is success? So to both of you, 20 years from now, what makes you optimistic about the future 20 years from now? And what are you worried about, especially when it comes to your business and where you're working? Yeah. So what worries me is, I guess, nationalism mm -hmm. and emphasis on, on nation states. I think particularly in Africa, where you know, there are things like the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, yet everyone's still focused on their own sovereign states. I think it's not enough cross-pollination sharing and thinking beyond one's own border. And it's not clear to me between now and in 20 years what will be the catalyst to change that thinking. Um, because to your point, the comments you made about Africa are about Africa, not about one country. And Africa's got 54 states, but I think we aren't coming together. And so what I think about it is in Africa, we compete about who has the biggest sandcastle whilst the world's building skyscrapers on the beachfront. And so that's something which really, really concerns me. But really excites me, again, as the points you mentioned, I think just the innovation we're seeing, but not only the innovation, but the entrepreneurs that are actually solving these problems. And I think in 20 years' time, if we can have Africans championing African problems, um, that'd be incredible. Because it's something which we were speaking about earlier with some friends here was, until you see that someone from your community can achieve greatness, whether that's political, monetary, political, whatever it is, the right is you won't think you can do it. And so having more and more, let's call it local champions that compete globally will do immense things for that youth that you speak about. So for me, what worries me and what makes me optimistic is the same thing. And that's tech. Um, so tech makes me optimistic because um, I think we're very late in the game. So Southeast Asia in general is very behind, right? So what makes me very optimistic is how technology can come in and completely drive innovation and change in these markets. But what also worries me is that if technology um, that is brought in has a high learning curve, people are scared of it, or people don't want to change how, we're, how they're doing things because, oh, tech is so uh, overwhelming, it's intimidating, and so on and so forth, then it also doesn't um, help into uh, driving that change, right? So I think it's both. It's, it's both optimistic for me that tech is coming in, but it's also worrisome for me where that can go, right? The topics that we spoke about uh, here in, this, in the last few days were very... North America centric, right? Yeah. And I think that's fine. Uh, I think it gives us a view of, you know, uh, AI, machine learning, China versus uh, US. So I guess on, on our side of the world, you know, how can we take those concepts and apply those to what we're dealing with on a daily basis is a challenge for us, right? Yeah. And to the point that both of you brought up earlier, conflict, tension can also create opportunities around the world, which both of you have spoken about very eloquently. That's all that we have time for today. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, the conversation has made me much more optimistic than most of the foreign policy conversations at this summit. This has been really great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to Future in Focus, a podcast from Schmidt Futures. 
We hope you've enjoyed these conversations about the future of science, technology, and global affairs. Future in Focus is produced by Caroline Hartman and Brooke Engerman. We'd like to thank our guests for providing their insights and expertise and all of you for listening. Make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform and stay tuned for more exciting episodes of Future in Focus from Schmidt Futures, a philanthropic initiative founded by Eric and Wendy Schmidt. At Schmidt Futures, we bet early on exceptional people making the world better. We bring these talented people together in networks and prove out their ideas and solve hard problems in science and society. To learn more about our method and the diverse types of capital and tools that we deploy, visit www.schmidtfutures.com. Thank you.